Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. All right. So, Clint and John, thank you so much for coming to the Opera Biz Podcast, where we are here at uh, Gibbard's Beer Culture on West 72nd Street. I'd like to give them a little plug because they give us beer. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Daniel. I'm having a Russian beer. beer. You are, you're the uh, old Rasputin. Yes. And I'm on brand. I'm having pumpkin ale. Pumpkin <laughs> ale, because, I mean, it is that time of year. Mm-hmm. And I'm drinking a breakfast stout, and I can't remember which one it was. Oh. So I'm going to have to plug that in later. <laughs> stout for breakfast? Yeah. yeah. I literally haven't eaten anything else today, so I think it's perfect. This is going to be so fun. I can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> We're not doing shots. We <laughs> Could we? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. follow up. I'm just going to put a bottle of whiskey on the table <laughs> and just uh, go nuts, guys. Oh, that'll be dangerous. That's when things get really explicit. I have an Evan Williams bottle in my gym bag at home, so I should have brought that. Well, now you're slacking. Uh, well, you know, part two. There is enough room in this rig to put, like, probably a 375 milliliter bottle. <laughs> I think it's, that's the future right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I uh, brought you guys on today because um, recently, recently within the last year, saw your uh, third workshop of the Copper Queen, mm-hmm. which you did yes. at Opera America. And uh, I'm, I, I love new opera. I think it's extremely important to perpetuate the art form. We can't just keep doing the old shit all the time. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how you guys uh, started working together. Oh, actually, let's talk to each of you individually real quick about kind of your background and, and what you do. So everybody kind of gets, for people that don't know you, kind of what's going on. So, Clint. Um, yeah, so I'm the composer of The Copper Queen. And um, out of, I went to college to study with David Del Trinity because he was like, at that time, was the one and only real tonal composer, like functional tonal composer. So I went to study with him. And then after I graduated, um, I applied to the American Opera Project's Composers in the Voice series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was with them. Um, you know, for their uh, concert series. And after that, I got accepted to the American Lyric Theater's uh, Composer Librettist Development Program. Um, and then after that, I started working with a lot of like local companies like Opera Mission and Opera on Tap and started getting song commissions from people um, getting their doctorate degrees. And uh, one of them was like Tim Hill, Daniel Bubeck, and a whole bunch of other people who just um, kept me writing vocal music mm. and then I wrote um, a few operas in between and then I was writing the opera um, Antinous and Hadrian which you know uh, I finished in 2012 so ahead of Rufus Wainwright <laughs> yeah. so we did um, an opera uh, opera mission did a full uh, orchestra workshop of it and John was there and to like, kind of check out my music and that's how we kind of started uh, working together how many operas have you written total um, Copper Queen is my fifth opera. Fifth. Awesome. Yes. And my third, one of them was a, like a one act that I did with the American Lyric Theater as like a workshop-y, not workshop-y kind of thing, uh, exercise mm-hmm. with what they do at Symphony Space at the end of the season of the librettist program. Um, and then Antinous and Hadrian is a huge, grand, grand opera. So it just got to the final orchestra workshop stage. It's a huge piece. Nice. I don't know what I was thinking in my 20s. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you immediately go grandiose. <laughs> like my first know. opera was a grand opera. No, actually, right. the very first opera I did was uh, Margot Alone in the Light, which is based on a Red Bra- uh, Ray Bradbury story. Nice. And they did that at the time. Remember Opera Grows in Brooklyn? Yeah. And, yeah so they did it there at Galapagos Art Space and the Gershwin Hotel. Um, now it's like a little one act yeah and then we did um when adonis calls together which Asheville lyric opera just 
uh, premiered and we have a Chicago production, new production by Thompson Street Opera coming up um, first two weekends of December. Fantastic. At the Pride Arts Center in Chicago. Awesome. So yeah, Copper Queen's my fifth. Cool. All right, John. So my background began in ballet, actually. I started dancing when I was 11, and then I continued that and then went into straight theater and musical theater and uh, went to uh, university for acting. Got into directing while I was there, and uh, prior to graduating my undergrad, I got a call from Fort Worth Opera saying they needed a choreographer, and I thought, oh, well, opera's not really my thing, and then they told me what they would pay me, and I was 21, so I thought, oh my God, I can pay my rent. So I ended up taking the job and uh, kind of just got sucked into it because they needed people with musical uh, knowledge, but who also had a big theatrical sensibility, and it kind of was just a natural fit. And so started working in assistant directing and choreography and opera in Dallas and Florida and Utah, kind of all over the place, and then began directing. And got sick and tired of people saying, well, if you're going to direct so much, why don't you write your own? And so I just started kind of writing my own thing. And I'd done some playwriting um, as an undergrad. And um, yeah, I was introduced to Clint and uh, just said, hey, do you want to get together and do something off the cuff and different with Adonis, which is an opera that is uh, comprised of several volumes of different kinds of erotic poetry by Gavin Dillard. And... um, yeah, like he said, we just had the premiere of that. And other than Clint, I've also worked at Washington National with AOI, wrote a one-act opera for them, which has since had eight productions and has several others in the works coming up. And uh, so I'm still doing uh, directing choreography, but uh, the libretto writing has really taken off as well over the past four years since I began. Uh, what are your, who are your influences for both directing and for libretto? Um, directing, I... I I kind of take from actually a lot of painters more than actual directors. I love looking at different kinds of art. Francis Bacon um, is one of my biggest influences, but I also love filmmakers. I love Derek Jarman. I love Peter Greenway. I love Ken Russell, all of whom worked in opera in some way, and so Mm -hmm. their staging has kind of really influenced me, as well as choreographers like Bill T. Jones and Jerome Robbins and Damien Watzel, people like that. So... um, my influence, I, I don't really have one specific style. It kind of depends on what the piece is and what the piece calls for. But I've always been very interested in seeing what's in the raw material of the music and text first, as opposed to imposing a visual style that's mine on yeah. everything, sort of like Robert Wilson does, for example, which yeah. is fine for certain pieces. I think for others, it doesn't work. Right. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of fine tune um, my process to whatever the piece calls for. And so libretto writing kind of was just a natural uh, next step. Mm-hmm. What about you for composition? Where, um, do you, where do you pull from? Well, I, when I was growing up, I grew up in a non-musical household, classical mm. music. Like, my family loves rap and R&B and pop music. Your mother so, likes rap? She does, yeah. You should see us fight in the car over <laughs> the radio station. Really and we had, to we had a joke this. growing up. I would say, I want to listen to one song each. And she was like, your song's like 45 minutes <laughs> when we listen to the classical station. Um, but a lot of my early influences were like Tiny Tunes and Looney Tunes, all that classical music. But for me, compositionally, I also grew up, um, we loved musical theater. Yeah. So we went to lots of Broadway shows and such. And you know what's really funny, John? 
I, I don't know why I haven't listened to like Miss Saigon soundtrack in forever. And then I was at the gym and I was just looking for something to listen to. And I put on Miss Saigon soundtrack, which I haven't listened to in like, I don't know, since I was in high school. So whatever, 20 something years ago. And I listened to it and the song, you know, Still Believe. Yeah. She, she holds that still, I still, like, and that's what I did in The Copper Queen, Still Pretty. I held oh, yeah. that note forever, <laughs> just like they did in uh, I Still Believe. And I was just like, oh my God, was I like influenced by that in my wow, subconscious? Wow, the heat is on. <laughs> <laughs> like 20 years ago? I mean, there's different harmony, different everything. You right, know what I mean? right. But it's just that, you know, that musical holds that word. And I did the same exact thing in the aria. Um, so I guess musical theater is a big influence. Yeah. Um, I love, you know, uh, Baroque music counterpoint. There's lots of counterpoint, even though you might not be able to actually, you know, pick it apart. But, you know, I'm very... I'm careful with voice leading, and I love fugues, I love imitation, I love stretto, I love all that kind of stuff. Um, Beethoven's a big influence, too, because I think his pacing is inevitable. Everything feels inevitable. Mm -hmm. That's what I kind of try to go for um, as well. And, you know, pop music's a big influence, too. I mean, I love pop harmonies, and I feel that once you can use pop harmonies, but I like to use them in a functional way. Right. And I guess... uh, my music is functional. Mm-hmm. Everything is based, not sonorous. It's like chords aren't just used for the way they sound. They, every pitch and every chord um, has a meaning and um, relates to what came before it and what comes after it. So music that is functional is what I'm influenced by. So let's go to the beginning of The Copper Queen. <clears throat> how, did this, how did this come about? What was that process? Well, that was, that was my fault because... Um, you know, John, did we finish Adonis at that point? It was, Adonis was finished being composed and written, but it hadn't been produced yet. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe I was just finishing it up. So we're looking, you know, for something else to do. We're trying to get Adonis produced. And, um, you know, I always look into competitions and such. So um, one of my friends, actually, Mitch Sturges, uh, who actually is a tenor, and he commissioned me very early on. Like, I think he commissioned, like, 15 songs with his husband or whatnot. He said, hey, Clint, you know, um, I think he worked at Arizona Opera. He was a choir in the choir at Arizona Opera. And he said, you know, there's this competition um, called Arizona Spark, and they're seeking um, Arizona theme-based subjects for, you know, this, you know, new initiative. And I called John, and I'm like, hey, John, you want to apply to this thing? And uh he kind of gave me hell because, you know, he's the librettist. He has to come up with the ideas, and I didn't yeah. have an idea. And tell him how many days there were. I think it was, like, literally 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he me right before the deadline. Right so before day the deadline. singular. Yeah, for an idea. And then he, you can't, he came back to me with a few ideas, and then he said, what, what did you say? Uh, it's a prostitute that lived in this hotel, and she killed I said, how about hotel. the ghost of a dead hooker that haunts a hotel that's still running? And I said, that's it. I said, that sounds amazing. And that was just... An idea that popped into your head? It, or were happened, you actually familiar with the story? No, I was actually in Arizona at the time directing Fia de Regimont, and Clint called me, and I hung up the phone. I said, listen, give me, give, me, give, me some, give me a second. And I literally Googled weird shit in Arizona, and after several pages of UFOs, I came upon... It's, there's a hotel in a town called Bisbee, a small border town that uh, has one of the most notoriously haunted hotels in the country. And it's been around for over 100 years, and it seemed like a very ripe story that we've heard 
a lot in opera about a woman who falls in love with a man she can't have and so she kills herself over him but the supernatural element as well as some contemporary ideas I had I thought could work and since it is an actual place you can go and visit in Arizona it seemed like something that could possibly uh, speak to their audiences and so I called Clint and he immediately said yes and that sounds like an opera yeah that, I'm like that's an opera yeah I want to write and, and I think at that point you know we did when Adonis calls um, I did Antinous and Hadrian I got I wrote so many baritone songs for like Barahunks and I was just like I want to write for a female I want to write an aria I want to write a tenor and soprano duet like that was one of my biggest cravings at that time um, and then when John presented me with this I'm like let's do it and then we submitted the idea and some music and then we um, then I think they chose five pieces to commission 15 minutes of it yeah, it was like 15, 20 minutes of, of material. But then after the that, piece. they would do um, 45 minutes. Um, and that, so that was our first uh, workshop in Arizona. 45, okay, minutes 45 minutes of the first act, I guess. And then the second workshop was the full thing. But I think the initiative was supposed to end after the 45-minute yeah. version. So then they said, hey, we want to hear some more. Nice. And then we wrote the second um, workshop. And then I think we finished that really quick I mean the turnaround for that was really quick and then the third workshop came about um, because uh, they hired a dramaturg Corey Ellison to kind of help us with the story a little bit and it was a little I mean it was a little bit long and it was it, it was a little messy you know the the second work we learned a lot that I mean that's such a luxury to have these workshops so we right. learned from them and mm-hmm. um, and then after the third workshop you know I think we're pretty happy with uh, piece. It's still got a little bit of tightening to do, which we're in the process of, but it's coming along nice. Yeah. Uh, what was the what was the part that you submitted at the very beginning? The aria. Oh yes. The main, um, like the big show, the unbeldi of <laughs> Still Pretty of, of the Copper Queen is an aria called Still Pretty that the woman whose name is Julia Lowell sings after she has been beaten by one of her clients and then by her father. And she sings about how, regardless of everything she's been through, she's still resilient. So um, we, that was one of the first things that we kind of composed mm-hmm. and wrote lyrics for. Wrote the lyrics out on the train on the way to work one day. And Clint was like, oh my God, this is an aria I have to, mm-hmm. I have to finish. And so we did that. And then we did a recording of it with Caroline Wara, who did an incredible job. And we submitted it to Arizona. And I think that's part of the reason why we were chosen to go forward because we actually submitted a recording mm. rather than just a MIDI right. of everything because it's one of those pieces that requires a lot of emotion and a lot of um, vulnerability on the part of the singer vocally to uh, really complete the picture. Yeah, we used the commission money for like the recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it worked. In, 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 in the I say, you know what, John, if we, uh, if we do this, we'll have a great recording of a new aria that we did and, if we, and it's worth the risk, you know, yeah. of... You know, investing in that, and Jennifer Peterson played the piano on that. So okay. it's just they have such a great chemistry, um, Jennifer and uh, Caroline, and she just hit it out of the park. And even since then, we've edited that aria even more because um, I think before it was like eight and a half minute aria, mm-hmm. and now it's down to under seven minutes, maybe six and a half, seven okay. minutes, and it's much tighter and um, better. I think. I know after the after the third workshop. 
I was with Catherine Frady, and I know she was dying to. She's like, I need to sing that aria. I have to. <laughs> that's that's something that I, I need the music to as soon as humanly possible. And I I know she was the only soprano that had that reaction. So oh, yeah, that's that's pretty fantastic. That it's a hard aria though. It is. I, I, mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's brutal. It's especially hard for the pianist because um, I it's all the orchestration is kind of written. It's very possible. It's in the fingers, but um, counting it and playing it, it requires. Uh, do you yeah. tend to write to piano first and then transcribe to orchestra? My, my favorite thing to do is actually do the orchestration first. Oh, okay. And then um, do the piano reduction uh, because I, I like... Time moves differently when it's orchestrated, right? Things take a little bit longer, and I hate doing the piano... Re- I mean, I like doing the piano reduction for workshops because then I could write it for the workshop. It's going to be a good piano part, and it's going to sound yeah. pianistic, and it's going to sound cool. But then when I'm orchestrating it, things take less time or more time. Things need to be expanded. So then I not only have to do the orchestration, the parts, I also have to rewrite and go back to the piano reduction and um, tweak that as well. So ideally, I mean, that, I mean, an ideal world that doesn't happen where you do the orchestration first. And then, the, like for Adonis, I did, or, I did the orchestration first. And for Antinous and Hadrian, I did the orchestration, uh, orchestration first. Um, but the Copper Queen was meant for piano and singers, mm-hmm. and they had like deadlines that needed to happen right away. Right. So I couldn't do the orchestration, and then and I didn't know what I was going to orchestrate it for anyway. Um, but yeah, I tend to like doing that first. So now that I have to orchestrate the Copper Queen, I'm like, oh god, what's going to happen? <laughs> it's like, is this, do you have an idea right now as to what the orchestra is going to look like? I, d- I do actually. Um, I'm thinking, uh, you know, one on each wind, one on each wind part. Um, Horn, trombone, uh, trumpet, and a string nunette, percussion, and piano. Mm-hmm. I think so. I'm, I'm not sure. Because I was just, um, I'm a composer in residence in uh, San Francisco with Music I'm in, and they just did this big festival and they did uh, Mendelssohn's Octet. Mm-hmm. And I loved that sound. I like that chamber sound. And it's not like a fake string ensemble. Yeah. Um, a string orchestra, I mean. Um, and I don't want to take the risk of writing a string orchestra piece in there and then having you know I mean potentially if it's ever done again or whatever uh, to have people cut corners and you don't get a real string sound so I said if I go for a chamber ensemble sound you can't really you know mess with that too much yeah so I'm thinking like maybe like 20 people 19 okay I'm not sure yet John what are you picturing the size of the the size of the production well the whole <clears throat> one of the things that um, I wanted to be very cognizant of when I was crafting it was something that is easy to produce in terms of the production. And so the entire piece takes place in one room. It takes place in Julia's room, which is 315 in the hotel. But the interesting thing that we haven't really talked about so far is I think that what sets this opera apart from just being another butterfly, traviata kind of thing about a fallen woman or a woman being used by a man is that the narrative is split. It occurs in 10 scenes, and it alternates between what happens in the room in 2010 and what happens in the room in 1910. In 2010, a modern woman named Addison Moore goes to stay in the room to confront the ghost and to see if the ghost is actually real, and then it alternates scenes with her and then flashbacks to what was happening in Julia's time. And as as Julia's story progresses forward, Addison's reality becomes more distorted and more influenced by the energies in the room. And um, 
to me, the idea of a 90-minute opera that takes place in one room, I wanted the audience to feel as trapped in that room as Julia did and as Addison does, where they can't get out. <laughs> so we wrestled for a long time over, do we make this a two-act or a one-act? And in the end, we've decided to go with a one-act, which I think is much more effective because there's no escape until the ending. So it is just going to be an accurately reproduced um, uh, set of this hotel room and it all takes place in that room but granted I won't give it away but some very supernatural things occur in that room towards the end of the piece so it does have some uh, special effects that are going to have to be used I know that when we we did the when I attended and you guys did the third workshop um, there was in the, in the Q&A afterwards that was one of the discussion pieces would there be an intermission would this be two acts would this be one because you did it without the intermission for, yeah, yeah. for the workshop and runtime was what just it was just under two hours, right? It's ninety-ish um, minutes. It's right now. I think the workshop was an hour forty-two. Okay. Um, an hour and forty-two minutes. Uh, I think, and we did some edits, and I think right now it's about one thirty-five. Okay. An hour yeah. thirty-five. <clears throat> um, but the funny thing about the, you know, we had this whole big thing about whether to do the intermission or not, and I have hyperhidrosis. I have very sweaty hands, um, so I take a medication that helps me with the sweat but it also dries you out. So I didn't want to, and I take extra, like if I'm going to be nervous because I'm going to sweat my butt off or whatever. Yeah. So during the workshop, I made sure I took a little extra medication so I was so dry, such dry mouth that I drank like a huge thing of Panera iced tea right before. And then I, you know, I got there early and I was drinking the iced tea and then um, people started coming in and I started saying, oh, hi, you know, and then, I, and then I'm like, oh my God, I need to go to the bathroom before, <laughs> the, before it starts. And then Joseph Spector, the president, comes on stage and I'm like, oh, crap. And then I had to take a seat. I was like right in the front row. And then halfway through the opera, I had to go to the bathroom. And I was like the only person who left, which does not go I think for you're it. allowed to, though. I, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> but it's like... I left, and people are like, why is he leaving? And I got to go to the bathroom so bad. And that does not go for our goal of not having an intermission that the composer had to pee in the middle of the opera. We're going to make it uh, really agitating for everyone. Just going to give everybody like a liter of water beforehand. And be like, you're trapped in here for an hour. I'm a big advocate, though, for intermissionless um, theater and opera because... On the one hand, it makes it much easier to market to people because it's like it's like going to a movie. If you can mm. sit through a movie, you can sit through a play or an opera. Yeah. But even more than that, I feel like it does uh, challenge the writers to be much more compact and much more efficient with their writing. Absolutely. So that's my big thing about why I think it's a wonderful format to write because you do have to be very, very cognizant of how much you're rambling on and how much music you do have and how much text you keep in so well, something is as intense as this piece yeah um it, it there would be a serious break in the drama mm -hmm. to walk mm -hmm. away anywhere past like the 40 minute point right and and it would it would hurt that flow and and kind of the the character that is the opera yeah um and i i i fully see you know that there's no padding. there's a major benefit for that yeah. specifically with this production mm -hmm. but in general yeah i mean if it's if it's under two hours yeah. It's under two and a half hours, I mean, yeah. for the most part. Yeah, there's no musical or text or fat. It's, it's very, yeah. very lean, mm -hmm. very compact, and it just keeps driving the whole way through. I mean, our goal was always to write something that was frightening and compelling and moving and had people on the edge of their seat the entire time. And based on the third workshop in particular, we've achieved that. Mm -hmm. And it just keeps on, you know, 
spiraling and spiraling. It gets tighter and tighter as the opera goes along. I mean, it kind of opens pretty expansive when you're talking about the, um, the haunted hotel, and then you get to know these characters, and then it starts, you know, um, going higher and higher. And then what I did with the music, too, I try to separate the two worlds very clearly in the beginning. Um, they're, you know, when you're in 2010, it's very modern-sounding music, and uh, Addison almost has a musical theater aspect to her singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Julia has ragtime and more kind of 1910 romanticism. And then towards the end of the opera, both characters and the whole opera just goes to one kind of sound, and it's just based purely on what's happening dramatically, not, oh, I have to use lots of ragtime towards the end, too. Like, all that kind of dissipates, and it just becomes about the music and the emotions, and I think, like, you ever see the movie um, um, District 9? Yeah. Do you know in the beginning of District 9, where they're filming it like it's a documentary? Yeah, the... The found footage kind of feel. Yeah. Yes. And then slowly, it just turns into a regular movie. Right. So I was inspired by that to do that musically as well. Mm. They have very clear musical idioms in the beginning of the opera. You know, for the first couple... I mean, of course, emotions and music happen as well. And then it just goes into... It's just an opera. It's just my Clint Brizzoni sound. Yeah. As opposed to, you know... Um, I have to do lots of, you know... Waltzes and ragtime and all that other kind yeah. of stuff. I feel like you have to fill a template. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that that always feels contrived. Mm-hmm. It always feels like, oh, I, I feel like I left this thing out. I should probably throw one of those in there. And yeah, yeah. Then you get. But to that it. being said, I did provide a lot of opportunities in the text for those things. Like there mm-hmm. is a specific moment where one of the characters hears a waltz coming from the downstairs piano that mm-hmm. goes up to the room. And so there were, it wasn't mm-hmm. like he had, oh, I want to put a waltz in here. There's a waltz in the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm always a big fan of finding ways in opera to have music be a part of the drama without it being, oh, this character's an opera singer, that's why they're singing. Right. So you mentioned the scary aspect. Let's, let's go to the, the actual, uh, actual storyline. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you guys did a little hands-on research oh, yes. for this as well. Let's, let's chat a little bit about that. So you, I mean, you started the process knowing the storyline, mm-hmm. and then was about halfway through you decided to go visit Arizona? Yeah, we wrote the first half, and then there was a Q&A, and one question we got more than any other was, well, have you gone to stay in the hotel? <laughs> and we kept saying, oh, well, we, we, we will. We plan on it. We will. And it just never really happened. And then as we were writing the second half, we were about halfway through the second half. Um, my mother actually insisted, uh, you guys have to go. You just have to go. No <laughs> one's going to take this seriously unless you guys go. And I said, oh, well, it's not really that big of a deal. And um, she booked the hotel for me a couple of days before we had to be in Arizona for the workshop. And so I said to Clint, well, we have the room booked, so we're going to have to go. And Clint really resisted quite <laughs> a bit. He really. Like, I do not. And, and the funny thing about that was that room is booked months All and the months time. and months in advance. And the fact that it was, it was it was that room. Yes, it was the actual it was room. The room. Yeah. And the fact that you know John's mom got the room like very in a very short time. The lady was like shocked. She was like, "Oh, it's free. It happens to be free." Those On two days you're asking for. Sure Saturday enough. night. Um, so Clint and I um, both flew into Tucson. And then made the, uh, I think, two two or three-hour drive from Tucson to Bisbee, which, by the way, you have to go through the town of Tombstone to get there. <laughs> and on the way there, we're driving through all of this completely beautiful desert landscape. There were little dust devil tornadoes all over the place. 
and you know you come around this great big uh uh like wall of rock and then sure enough this little strange quirky ghost town arises out of the uh out of the mist and we pull in and we were both a little freaked out when we got there because the hotel is very first of all there were bikers everywhere <laughs> we weren't anticipating it is biker that. territory yeah 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 so it was very much like that scene in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I was really excited. And so we walk into the lobby and they've kept everything very, um, very much the way it used to be in the olden times. The whole town's like an old West ghost town. So they still have like a, um, what's that? The soundboard or the, um, what's that old thing in a hotel with the, tel- the telephones? The, um, oh, the switchboard. The switchboard. Yeah. There was a switchboard and then a great big safe and a cash register. All of those things at the front. And um, we were asking the lady who worked there a lot about it. And she said, well, whether you believe or not, you know, you just want to be careful. Don't leave any valuables out because sometimes the ghost is known to hide things Mm -hmm. and people lose things in the room. And she said, one thing you do not want to do, do not mention the ghost to the staff, the cleaning staff, because they get very, very superstitious and they tend to just get very very weird if you mention really? it to them and sure enough um the next day i actually walked by the maid's closet and there was a gigantic catholic icon in the closet <laughs> yeah just that they all kind of looked at when they came in and out but anyway we go up to the room and uh it's exactly what you would think i mean the headboard is a great big gaudy colorful pair of peacock heads <laughs> um, it looks very kind of boudoir, very um, Belle Watling from Gone with the Wind, mm. kind of um, madam, lots of red and velvet, and there's naked women on the walls. And and Clint felt a little more uneasy going in than I did at first. He was like, oh, my God, there's something in here. I can't. I can't. And I was but, like, well, we booked it, so we're staying. It was weird because we both didn't want to walk in the room. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we, we stood outside the room. first. We both argued who should go in first. <laughs> But we finally went. Test the waters. No, you go. Yeah. But we finally went in, and everything seemed fairly straightforward. But one, the first thing that happened was, so we checked in, we got our luggage, and we had to go get dinner. And we didn't. There was an armoire and the bed and whatever in the drawers, and we didn't really unpack. We kind of just left our bags there. So we went to dinner. We got back about two hours later, and the armoire door, the armoire doors were open, which. We didn't touch the armoire, so mm-hmm. no idea how that happened. And when you, and then it opens to the, when you walk in the room, you just see the door. So yeah. the door looks like there's a person there. Uh, so it opens up in your face. And then yeah. we saw that we both went, <gasps> well, you went Well, you did. Then. I didn't. I, I wasn't. I was like, great. She's, she's aware of our presence. Perfect. <laughs> so um, we were hanging out in the room and we uh, actually played the aria out loud in case Julia was listening to everything. And nothing really happened then. I swear the camera was moving, but you lies, had, but lies. he had motion. Uh, what do you call it? Stabilization yeah. on his film. I said, John, the camera is shaking or wobbling. Uh, yeah, because you were trembling with fear. <laughs> so eventually, um, I actually the interesting thing about the hotel is there's a ghost on every floor. There's a ghost of a little boy who haunts the second floor. Julia haunts the third floor, and then there's supposed to be the ghost of a military man who haunts the fourth floor. So I wanted to go explore the rest of the hotel. Clint wanted to stay in and watch American Dad. Yeah. So he stayed in and watched <laughs> TV while I went up to the... The, the fourth floor was particularly um, malevolent. You felt something very, very unwelcoming on mm. the fourth floor, which even I wasn't really crazy about staying up there too long. So 
we finally got back um, or I got back to the room and it was getting late and so we decided to go to bed and we had we had previously decided that we were going to sleep in different parts of the room to see if we had different experiences because a lot of people a lot of couples have said when they sleep in the bed Julia tickles your feet or dances on the side of the bed or pulls the covers over whatever and then there are certain people who say that oh by the bathroom there's a presence or different things so I let Clint have the bed and I slept on the floor outside of the bathroom mm-hmm. uh, do you I guess we can I mean that was so weird because where you slept the energy was really really dark heavy. and heavy and intense and yeah. it's right I, like I was afraid to go to the bathroom there yeah. I don't know how you slept over there I guess maybe that was it was different at the time I doubt that they had a bathroom there in 1910 so right. maybe that's where she hung herself or whatnot I mean so my experience since I was on the bed I literally um, a few things happened to me it was you know we had I was in my sweatpants and it wasn't when, when did we go it was like September and it's Arizona so it's like you know it's hot um, my legs were freezing the whole night long my legs were freezing and then I woke up in the middle of the night because I felt somebody tug on my leg. I, I'm not kidding. Like I was like I. And it's one of those feelings like where you have the covers over your head as a kid and don't want to look out. Mm-hmm. And I have not felt that since I've been like three years old or whatever. And then I also had a really crazy intense dream that Julia dragged me out of the room and I felt so real and I was screaming, "John, help me, please! She's getting me!" And then I woke up. And then, yeah, it was really creepy. And you felt something on your feet, too, didn't you? Well, I felt her, like, tugging at my yeah. my legs and my feet. Um, that woke me up once. The second time after that, my legs were freezing all night. And then I had that horrible dream, which I felt was so real. And I had that dream twice. That was, the I, you know, the same exact dream. Same thing twice, yeah. Twice. Yeah. 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 No, and so I'm lying on the floor. And I actually slept pretty good until about 4.30 in the morning. And I have never had a night terror in my entire life until that night. So I don't remember any dreams, but I bolted upright at 4.30 a.m. And I felt this really intense pressure on my chest. And I was also filled with the most unbelievable rage I have felt in my life. And I remember lying there looking at Clint on the bed and thinking, I want to kill him. I'm oh going God, to help. kill Clint. <laughs> when he gets up, I'm going to murder him. And sure, I don't know how long. It, it felt like forever, but it couldn't have been more than a few seconds because it passed, and I was so out of breath and exhausted and just just sighing really crazy over this horrible feeling. And then I lied back and looked at my phone, and it was about 4.35 or so, and I did not go back to sleep until about maybe 6.30 when the sun started to come up. I slept for maybe another hour or so. And Clint and I both woke up at about the same time at around like 7.30, mm-hmm. quarter to eight. And we were both looking at each other. It's like, did you? And he's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, did you? I did too. And we both were just kind of really tired and shook from the whole thing. And we went to breakfast at a little cafe down the street. And we ordered and it was there was a staff of maybe two or three people. And we're sitting there waiting for our French toast. and this woman comes up to us who was not our server and she said, I'm so sorry. I'm, I know I'm not your server. I don't mean to bother you, but um, I'm actually a clairvoyant. I don't know why the two of you are here, but I sense that something from here is 
drawn to you. There's mm-hmm. something about you two that is meant to be here. And of course we said, girl, sit down and talk to us. <laughs> and so we told her just a couple of brief things about why we were there. And then she asked us what had happened. And she didn't ask us for any money or give us a yeah. card or anything. Yeah. She just sat there during her shift and was talking to us. And what she explained was that the rage that I felt was the spirit's anger that people had misunderstood her and that her life was cut short and that she Mm. was trapped in this place Mm -hmm. and that what Clint was feeling, the coldness, the shivering, was her longing, was Mm -hmm. her desperation for someone to keep her warm and feel the warmth of human interaction again. So it was her sadness. So she... What the clairvoyant told us was that the spirit had reached out and touched the two of us so we could feel what it felt like to be trapped in the room for this particular entity. And, you know, after we drove out of Bisbee on the way to our workshop, we were kind of, did that really happen? I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe we were just hoping for something to happen. I don't know. But I remember that night very, very vividly. And whether or not you believe in the afterlife or spirits or ghosts, it was a very unsettling and very visceral kind of an experience mm-hmm. that I've never had before and it's definitely made its way into the revisions that see, how, how did that affect the second half of the show the good thing was that we had that third workshop you know yeah. I mean because I think it was already ready by the second workshop so yeah. during the th- for the third workshop we incorporated a lot of that and John you incorporated some new words there were and- some textual changes about what the geography was actually like since we had been there and also I think that I it went from a lot of the text went from being general in terms of, um, Oh, I can't wait to break out of here and find my fortune to, I am so tired of being in this tight sweat box in Mm -hmm. this tight room. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to find phrases and words that I felt in that room that seemed more pertinent to the rage and the sadness and the isolation she must have felt. And I think that musically, Clint also brought in a lot more emotional levels to it Mm -hmm. uh, because of what we experienced. So um, it definitely made a huge difference because we feel like we are much more entitled to tell this now that we've gone there and felt this presence. Mm -hmm. I remember um, the second, I mean, the latter part of the opera, I, I felt she needs a moment where you know she's gonna make it, and she she needs a moment to herself, saying that she has hopes of getting out of there. And we added that um, after the second workshop and the third workshop. You know, when Julie has that moment right before her dad comes in the room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is something that I wanted. I felt when we went to the hotel that I needed to get out of me. That was not in the second workshop. Mm. Um, the ending also has a bit. We 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 always had trouble with the ending, which details the modern woman Addison and the ghost finally coming together mm. and I don't want to I don't want to give this away but you do find out that there is a connection that the two women have that's connected to their families and that ending was always a little bit more of a oh we have a plot twist but emotionally it was always missing something and I feel like that our experience there not only brought us closer to Julia but brought us closer as a team mm. because we traveled together and we talked about so many things not just about the opera but about life in general and so a lot of the emotion and also to be honest I mean Clint and I have both matured as artists and as you know guys in their mid to late 30s kind of coming into this new chapter in our lives and that has come to the opera as well this mm-hmm. maturing um, that both of the women in the piece go through as well and so 
all of those experiences together really ripened the emotional stakes of the piece for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's made it a lot, the characters a lot more three-dimensional and believable. So speaking of characters, I, I regularly recommend to um, singers, especially young singers, because I tend to work with more of those um, people in the grad school realm and immediately out of grad school kind of young pros, work with, work with composers um, work with librettists, work with directors. They, I mean, if you can work with a composer or a composing team in the process of the generation of a piece, um, it's unlike any other musical experience you'll ever have. Mm -hmm. So how did you guys, um, how did you guys do the casting for uh, the different workshops? It, was it the same cast all the way through? Did you, did people kind of shift in and out? There were How did you choose who you worked with? There, we really didn't have a whole lot of say in it. Mm -hmm. there, were, uh, there were some cast members that remained the same, but really it was the young artists at Arizona Opera which changed between the two workshops. And then they did an amazing job, but um, I really insisted that the third workshop be in New York City because I wanted to see what a non-Arizonian audience would think of the piece mm -hmm. because the piece was very well received in Arizona because, oh my God, I've been to Bisbury. I want to go mm -hmm. to Bisbury. They, they all knew the story. But I wanted to see if a New York audience who knew nothing about it would still relate to it. So we did it in New York with a New York-based cast, which came about mostly through Corey Ellison and also Zach Hayhurst and Christopher Cano and uh, uh, Joe Spector all at Arizona Opera. So we kind of, with our input, we just looked for people who might bring some emotional depth to it and we found a lot of singers who um, really brought a maturity to it that some of the yaps in Arizona didn't quite have quite yet. They mm -hmm. did a wonderful job but again these were seasoned people who'd been in the business for a very long time and were in a different state in their careers Yeah. so that brought a different level to it that we hadn't seen yet. Well yeah I mean like I know for you, you guys had Paul Whelan mm -hmm. as the, as the uh, as the father slash owner of the hotel, who's a good friend of mine and a client, and, and yeah, he's in his fifties. He's mm -hmm. he's he's put some years in. It's right. a little different than pulling somebody who's in a young artist. Well, the character's fifty two, so if you have a young artist, I mean, they did a great job. And part of the program, Spark program, was the opera was going to be performed by their yaps. Yeah, um, so wouldn't have much say. And they, you know, they really chewed it up and they liked working with it. Um, and I think we had one app that stayed consistent through uh, Alyssa, mm -hmm. um, and I wrote it for her mm. at the time. And I asked them, oh, "I'm going to write it for you. So what do you um, what do you like doing with your voice? What don't you like doing with your voice?" So it's funny that it was influenced by these young artists, and I was writing kind of for them. But, you know, a, a soprano is a soprano, a mezzo is a mezzo, and right. it just they're more inclined to like certain things or not. So yeah. then the role kind of took on these, um, like the mezzo role, uh, Alyssa liked doing runs and fun stuff like that. So I incorporated that as much as I could, so it would be dramatically uh, a payoff. Um, so by the time that it was done, I, and I also just write for my ideal voice in my mm -hmm. head as well. Right. Right. Um, the ideal Julia, you know, Maria Collis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. She's just kicking around. <laughs> Uh, but that right there goes into uh, that concept of you don't know what, as a singer, when you walk into an audition, you don't necessarily know what's going on in the head of the people who are sitting on the other side of that table listening to you. Like if you, if you write for a specific voice and you hear that in your head and then you run across that, that's what you're going to want to cast. It's mm -hmm. not going to have anything to do with who the person is. Yeah. It's what that voice brings to the role. And then that plus a combination of characters. I mean, so that, that speaks highly to 
their yap mm-hmm. that they get to do this kind of thing with mm-hmm. with you and see the the genesis of this kind of project, which and is not a, a small whole, project. They were the yaps were very receptive to changes, which happen all the time when you're working with me. <laughs> but it's always for the best, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that we learned along with them. We learned who these people were mm-hmm. through them and their experiences. Whereas the New York workshop was great, but um, it was so fast. Yeah, it was very very quick, and there's never enough time, never enough money, never enough space in New York. So you just have to get talented people together and just hope for the best. Whereas in Arizona, we actually had time to really shape and fine-tune it with the Yaps, which was invaluable to getting us to a place for the New York workshop where we knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you were saying about how young singers need to get involved, not just with learning you know, the standard rep stuff, working with contemporary and living composers, librettists, directors, they really do learn a lot about the craft that's not only happening now, but they can apply all of that to if they're doing Mozart, if they're doing Puccini. Right. Just the the idea of looking beyond the notes, beyond the dynamics, beyond the text even, and really creating something that's unique to them and shows their best talents vocally and dramatically within whatever the piece is. I would, as much as I would like to be able to hang out with Mozart de Ponte, that's not really a possibility. <laughs> but you know, hanging out with you guys is feasible and working on new projects mm-hmm. together is something that you can actually do as a, as a singer. It's an extremely exciting thing. It also, it makes you look at the art form differently mm-hmm. because, you know, if you just, you get music in front of you, you sing it, you crank it out, you're like, I kind of think this is what's going on. But if you can actually pick the brain of, of the team responsible for the creation of the piece, you have a connection to it that you would never have otherwise, mm-hmm. which, is, which is awesome. And I think like people don't realize that you know, while we're in the workshops, we're changing things, right? Oh yeah. Like right before, even in the New York workshop, we were like doing like little changes right before they went on stage. Mm-hmm. Like this will work better, and and it does work, and you don't really um, get to see if it works or not until it's like right in front of an audience. Yeah. Mark so. my words: the instant any of the rehearsals or workshops are over, Clint and I immediately mm-hmm. get on the phone or get on the subway <laughs> and go through everything and mm-hmm. talk about what needs to be improved what worked really well what didn't and how can we make it better yeah but yeah. i think that you know to be successful at this as a singer you have to be receptive to the, it's like working on a soap where you get page changes the day of and right. line changes because it's always evolving and how do you make it better and better and so i think that singers and musicians who can be receptible to changes and improvements uh are going to do better at this because at the end of the day, we want the piece to be as good as it can be, and we want the singers to sound as good as they can. So, you know, all of this kind of finagling that we're doing to uh, get the piece down to the bare essentials is, in the end, you know, the best for all of us. Is there anything you did during this process that you would not do again? Like, what, what, are, some of the, what are some of the really big challenges that you've learned to deal with along the way? I think that I would not write a piece about something that, if I was going to write a piece about a place that I could visit, I think I would go there first. Mm. Okay, yeah. Because we both just assumed, well, I assumed, oh, well, well because there's no literature at all about this woman. We don't know. We, Everybody says it's real. It might just be an urban legend. Nobody's right. really sure, but there's no documentation available. Um, so I just assumed, okay, well, I'll just write whatever and, you know, see how it goes. And I wish that I would have gone to Bisbee first and gotten soaked up all the local color and met the people and talked to the people because that definitely would have saved me a lot of confusion about who I was writing about, which yeah. was resolved once I went there. 
I'm not actually really happy with the whole process. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great response perfect. to have. That's awesome. I mean, I mean, I like the fact, I guess it's different from your standpoint because you're, you basically crafted all the drama and gave me this wonderful template to kind of go to town on. Um, but for me, I liked that we did the first workshop and got a lot of it out of us. Yeah. And then we went to go visit, right? And then we got to see if what we did, you know, in the second workshop was good would work even after we visit it and we realized it was not and then we kind of kept and I wouldn't have thought of those themes or whatnot if we went there first mm -hmm. so I was able to mold those themes to fit our trip um, so I don't know I'm really happy with the end product so if I'm really happy with the end product then I don't care how I got there yeah. I think yeah. something else that was interesting was the fact that this is one of the few times when a dramaturg was brought in halfway through when the piece was already workshopped in its full length version. As opposed to right at the beginning. As opposed to at the beginning, which was interesting because I had never worked with a dramaturg before. And when I met Corey, we had a very good rapport right away. And she, she, she liked the piece right away, but she also had a lot of questions and mm -hmm. a lot of concerns about things. And I think that, I, I don't know if it would have been better if she would have been there at the beginning, because if she had, I may not have had the audacity to do some of the things that I did, but they were already in place and certain certain uh, audacious things worked really well and um, didn't have to be changed. But I think that that was, that was a challenge, but it was one that ultimately made the piece so much better. Yeah. So we got very lucky. For those her. who don't know what that job entitles, give us a quick run through of what she does, what she did for you guys. What, well, what Corey does is really great. Corey never tells you Oh, that sucks. Corey will just kind of look at you and say, now, this line here, is that what you meant? Did you really mean this? And for me, at least, the instant somebody puts that seed of doubt in my head that it's not making sense, I immediately will change it and figure out, okay, I have to make this clear. I have to make right. this more specific. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, a dramaturg is there to basically help you to be a check and balance and to help you see mm -hmm. things that maybe you didn't see ahead of time. Um, some dramaturgs are there to say, you know what, if you have a chorus of 50, that's going to be a problem. Or if you have, you know, eight scene changes within 10 minutes, that's kind of a problem. But because this was so economical and the production side of it, Corey was really only there to talk to us about dramatic and textual problems and also musical questions that she had. And so we were able to really get into the nitty gritty and the, the nuts and bolts of this and make it a lot more real and specific. I mean, I worked with Corey um, Ellison when I was at American Lyric Theater. Mm. She was like our dramaturg and basically taught us about operas and how to you know, do certain things. And what I love about her so much is she's making the piece a John and Clint piece. She wants it to be the most John and Clint piece she wants our vision to come through. Yeah. And that's what she helps with. And she also, like, you know, checks and balances. Like, is this historically accurate as well? Some of, like, the music, like, why is this here? And some of the words, why is, you know, Julia saying this line? Why would a 1910 prostitute say this? Things like that that we wouldn't necessarily catch. Yeah. Um, but she's, she's really good at making sure that we are creating the piece that we are intending to create. Um, and I think that's invaluable. And she lets us get away with nothing. <laughs> but it's great. It's good. You need those people. Absolutely. absolutely those I, people. I welcome that because I, one thing about, I think that people ask me, what is your dance background? What, is the, what are the positives of that in opera? Because some people think, oh, they're so diametrically opposed to each other. What I love about the dance background that I have is that it 
makes me want to explore every option. Mm. I'm constantly thinking, well, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this, and then the best idea in the room is the one that we go with. Mm. And I think that with someone like Corey, who cares about the work, mm. cares about the end product, it's never about this idea is not good, it's about this idea can be more lucid, this idea can be more specific, how can we get there? She never once said to me, I think the line should be this. Yeah. And so, Everything that's there came from Clint and I. She was just someone who was able to squeeze every last <laughs> drop of creativity out of us that could be used with this. And mm-hmm. so it, um, it really, really was an essential part of the process for us. Yeah. Talk to me about why opera? Why is this the, this the art form that you've landed on creating? Um, I was going to say this before. Like, I don't feel like I chose opera. Um, out of you know college, I just started getting work for with singers, and after that, just work you know in operas. Um, I've had I've only written like one commission was from a symphonic wind ensemble, the Big Apple Corpse here, mm-hmm. and my residency in San Francisco. I do some chamber music as well, but other than that, it's all just been opera, opera, art song, you know, vocal, choral music, and I'm like, oh my god, I want to kind of. <laughs> write a symphony one day but you know uh, as long as that work keeps on coming in that's what I will do and I you know I never really liked opera growing up I went to the opera because my mom's uh, boss used to get free tickets to the Met like the box and he says I'm not going to that and then she would give them to me and then she didn't want to go to that either <laughs> and then I would just go you know with my friends from high school and we would watch these great operas I had no idea what was going on I didn't like it because I felt it was too slow paced and I'm like waiting just for the aria and then I'm happy right. Right? so when I'm writing opera I think we think more cinematically and we want to write an opera that, that yeah. feels it's happening in real time and there are moments of you know expanse but unless it dramatically calls for it I'm not going to go there so right now I love writing opera especially with John I'm not sure what I'll do in the future but hopefully write more operas with John I feel like the people who um, are, are truly meant to be Working consistently in the opera industry just can't seem to escape it. <laughs> like it just—it's just recurring. Well, I mean, when I, they get good people, they want to keep them keep them in the pen, as it yeah. were. But I mean, my simple answer to why opera is—I was raised Catholic, and so I was raised on pageantry and music <laughs> and candles <laughs> and fabrics. And no, it is. I no, mean, it's a great answer. I totally understand why. No, yeah. mass mass is a pageant. Absolutely pageantry. It's yeah. a pageantry. You know, whether you do the Easter pad, the crucif- the Passion at Easter, or the Advent, you know, and all of that. But I think that going to mass in these mostly Hispanic churches growing up, I was just really and, and saints. All of these ideas about sainthood and mythology, and then. Combine that with being in ballet since I was 11 years old. I mean, it all kind of just came together. But again, I had no opera exposure whatsoever until I was in my early 20s. And all of my opera education was completely self-taught. And so the more I got into it, the more I was like, oh, my God, this is more than just, you know, women with horns. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think that the great thing about opera now is that it is not just a static person standing there singing something that is 200 years old Mm -hmm. it's such the genre is becoming so fluid in the types of opera the types of stagings and you can like like film i think there are so many subgenres within they're not all the same not all opera is four hours long not all opera is about you know a soprano dying 
You know, so I think that there are even subgenres within opera that you can say, this is really what I do. So it's not like if you do opera, you're limited to just one style. And I think that Clint is a very lyrical um, composer who believes in creating beautiful motifs and long vocal lines and legato that singers and audiences love. But I also enjoy working with people who like to write very avant-garde, strange stuff that pushes the boundaries and all kinds of uh, seemingly impossible ways. So I think that what I particularly enjoy about opera is that it's kind of the definition of it itself is so fluid and it means something different to so many different people. Mm -hmm. You can go see something at the Met or you can go see something in a circus warehouse in Bushwick and it's still, you know, classified as opera or yeah. any kind of musical theater in a way. So I think to me it's just that there's a lot of possibilities. You can get away with a lot of things in opera that you can't in a lot of other genres of um, theater. Where do you see, this is kind of a loaded question, where do you see <laughs> the, the future of opera going? I mean, I see a lot more movies being made into opera, but that's the same with musical theater. I mean, I think that a lot of people are turning to a lot of, a lot of the same source material, which is good and bad. I mean, I think that, you know, and there are certain films and certain stories that would make great operas, but I, I, I look forward to seeing more original stories hopefully happening. And even though this is based on kind of a legend, it does have a lot of our own sensibility and story put into it and it's been successful because I think it's told honestly and it has a great score mm. um, but I do think that one thing we're seeing is a lot more opera that's being written um, with chamber possibilities because every opera company is um, having trouble fundraising and making new audiences um, come to the theater and one way to do that is to keep things short and compact and cinematic and you know grabbing their attention right away. And so I think that we're gonna be seeing a lot more operas that are shorter with a lot smaller casts and a lot more very contemporary, relevant um, subject matter um, that really makes people who have never been to the opera before say, oh my God, I'm so glad I saw this. I wanna see more. Yeah. I mean, from a composure perspective, you know, we just need to do more of it because yeah. We need to practice. Yeah. Mozart, how many, you know, Verdi wrote what, 30 something operas? We need to write them, get them produced. And some of them are going to be flops, some of them are going to be hits. Yeah. But composers, it, it shouldn't be like all this pressure. Oh, you finally get your opera produced, and there's all this pressure for it to be the next great masterpiece. Right. Like Mozart didn't just write an opera, oh, this is the next great masterpiece. He wrote it and entertained the audiences, maybe, maybe not. But there's so much pressure put on composers and the team um, to create the next great. American opera or the next great opera and I think that we should kind of stop thinking that way and just yeah. give you know composers and librettists opportunities to create these operas without putting so much pressure on us to you know um, to create as I said the next no, great I, opera I, I totally agree with you um, I had a big conversation with a friend of mine uh, yesterday Peter Kendall Clark who's a singer here in New York baritone we were talking about Marnie because mm -hmm. he had very firm thoughts about it one direction. I had very firm thoughts about the other direction. And I said, you know, we don't have to agree on liking certain operas. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's new and it's being done and that we're talking about it mm -hmm. is the important part. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, if we look at the, the canon of opera that we know of today, it's, it's such a small percentage of what was actually produced mm -hmm. for hundreds of years. Yep. You know, we're, we're not, we're, we're basically, we're looking at somebody's top 10 list. Yeah. It's the best picture winners. That's yeah, it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. 
and those just they're like oh these continually put butts in seats mm-hmm. I mean I love Bohem <laughs> but that's the people the reason that it's done over and over and over again is because it's easily digestible it's semi-relatable and it puts butts in seats mm-hmm. like it's that simple like the music is great yeah but it puts butts in seats no matter what because people are like oh I know this opera I'm gonna mm-hmm. go see it um, but how many other pieces did Puccini do that people have no, I, I mentioned something about Rondine the other day to somebody and they're like what, what happened well there's a good reason why Rondine has not done more right, well yeah <laughs> that's exactly the point but, but he had to write that it. but he did yeah. that it was practice for him he had yeah, to get that out of his system he realized oh operetta is not for me right, yeah, right. <laughs> there are two great pieces in it and that's and we're moving that's on. it yeah I do have to say and I mean this sounds like total ass licking on Clint's part or, or my part for Clint. But I think the other thing, what he was saying about not writing to write the next big hit, we would love to have the next big hit. But on the other side, Clint and I genuinely love collaborating. Just creating. Yeah. We, we love to just get together. We, I mean, we talk on the phone like two women from like <laughs> Bye Bye Birdie. We sit there <laughs> on the phone for hours just gabbing and gabbing about music and about what we want to write and how we want to do it. And... I think that those are the best kinds of collaborations because we disagree on a lot of things, but we love to talk and discuss and mm-hmm. create together. And I think that when you have that kind of synergy, whether the piece succeeds or not, you have still created something great. You've, mm-hmm. created, you've created something new that never would have come about if you had not gotten connected with this particular human being. Mm-hmm. And I think that the teams that get together with producers and dramaturgs and singers, whatever, and create these pieces that mean something to them at the time, whether they're done again or not, I think that's a great thing. And that's what keeps this art form alive is the sense of collaboration and learning. Yeah. So if, say a singer wants to sing pieces of anything you've done, are, are they available if they were to contact you? Do you need to oh, yeah. wait till certain things get to a certain produced point? I mean, you could um, contact me through my website, clintbrazoni.com. Some of my music is also on newmusicshelf.com. Okay. Um, so it depends what you want. If it's like an aria that's not yet published or whatever, I'd be happy to send it to you for yeah. $600 or something. <laughs> <laughs> for a thank you. I'll be auditioning with this piece you've never heard that I paid dearly for. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I'm always, hap- I'm always very happy to share my music um, with young singers, you know, that they want stuff for concerts or whatever. Yeah. Um, writing music is a different story, but like just right. old stuff, um, I'm very happy to share. I'm it. just thinking of, of, of more ways to perpetuate the music that you've already written mm-hmm. to, to get it out there to more ears that wouldn't necessarily run across any other time because I mean, if you bring something to even an audition where people kind of know who you are, but mm-hmm. they may be disconnected just enough, they're like, oh, I need to know more about this piece that you just sang because I've never mm-hmm. heard it before. No, we really hope that Still Pretty at least, I mean, we've written a lot of a lot of arias together, but Still Pretty, we hope, is one that Sopranos will have in their package for a yeah. long time. Yeah, yeah. Good luck to the pianist. <laughs> <laughs> and have fun with this. Mm-hmm. So, next up for the next stages for Copper Queen. Well, we still have a little bit of tightening to do, but um, after doing three workshops with Arizona Opera, we look forward to hopefully collaborating with them again really, really soon in the future. We're kind of waiting to hear back from them about certain aspects of it, so Mm -hmm. we'll kind of just see how that goes. Um, We 
definitely have other projects that we want to work on that we've already mm -hmm. started discussing about. And so should Copper Queen be produced, whether it's by Arizona or whoever, it will be produced. We're going to make that happen. Like, just like we did with Adonis. Nobody wanted, <laughs> nobody wanted to do Adonis for years and years. And then finally, we got together with the poet who wrote the books of poetry and we kind of self-produced it. Yeah. And it was a sellout. And as to, after that, we have this other production company that came and wanted to do it. So we'll make it happen somehow. Some um, stuff just needs to sit on the shelf for a little while. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and the longer it sits on the shelf, in our case anyway, the more fine-tuned it gets. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but we're still uh, waiting for some confirmation about the next step for Copper Queen. Are you working on any, what are you working on next? What's, um, what's new on the horizon? Well, I'm working on a current uh, pagan mass. Okay. Um, the same poet from the When Adonis Calls um, is commissioning a new mass, so... I'm trying to pop that one right out. <laughs> it's like based on like you know the the Gloria, the Christe, whatever, but like with new text um, for chamber orchestra and choir. So I'm working on that, um, and I'm also working on a two viola piece for my composer residency in San Francisco. And um, John and I have like 105 ideas that we're working on. And what we started doing recently too, John's been writing these pop songs, <laughs> these pop lyrics, <laughs> and he sends them to me, and I have so much to write and do and I'll just write the song nice you know they're like little palate cleansers for him yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but yeah we've we've I've had a tumultuous summer and so I've written a lot of little <laughs> pop lyrics that I'll send to Clint and he'll compose overnight and then we'll send to a singer to sing it you know a cabaret somewhere so that's kind of fun it's a different mm -hmm. we want to write a musical one day so we're working mm -hmm. on that but did, did either of you see uh, A Star Is Born the yes. new one so there was that that whole "Quote unquote sellout piece that she does yeah, on yeah. SNL. <laughs> um, did you read the interview that she gave after the fact? So people were like, "Why was this in there? Yeah. You know what what was up with this?" And basically, the response was, in short, uh, sometimes music it just needs to be fun. Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't have to be super deep or gut wrenching or mm -hmm. evoke excessive emotion. Sometimes music just we want it to be enjoyable." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't lessen it as an art form. Well, at it's all. a muscle. Composition and writing is a mm -hmm. muscle, and if you don't keep it healthy and active, you lose it. Yeah. And so we just, you know, are constantly working on stuff. But um, we we have been toying around with an idea about the Virgin of Guadalupe. Okay. As an operatic subject, so we're we're looking at that. So we'll see. Interesting. Yeah. Just one thing. Yeah, I always say, like, as a composer, you know. Musicians practice for hours and hours a day, right? So you can't, just because you don't have a commission or whatnot, doesn't mean that, oh, I'm not going to write anything. Right. Right. Or if you do, you know, I'm just going to only work on this. Right. You know, so when John sends me stuff, even if I'm working on a commission, I'm like, you know, this is another muscle in my palate I can exercise or whatever. Clint um, always takes my calls. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think that's, like, uh, very important for composers. You you. I, and I think when I first was writing, I thought of it, well, I used to practice the piano like six hours a day because I wanted to be a pianist, but then my sweaty hands kind of got in the way. <laughs> um, and I'm like, well, if you want to be a composer, you have to kind of practice and dedicate yourself just as much as you did to being a pianist. And I always think of that. And I don't, and I don't consider practicing just writing, too. It's studying, researching, mm -hmm. you know, living life even, you know, building new experiences for yourself so you have... Um, stuff to write about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, you, have, you must have hundreds of unfinished things that you've done a little tweak here, a little tweak there, and then moved on. Or do you kind of tend to write to completion? I always, 
I am I'm, I'm at the school of I'll finish it. I always I can never not finish. I'm a okay. Gemini, but yeah. <laughs> usually Gemini's can't finish anything. But I, I think I have like a Cancer rising or something, so I'm able to finish everything. <laughs> so I always finish a piece and never leave anything unfinished because it annoys me to death to have anything unfinished. But I will do what you said. I like come up with an idea and I'll just store an idea. Yeah, thing. Yeah, this yeah. is an emotion. And how do you feel like when I listen to old pieces? It's kind of like a timestamp. I remember my life at that time. Yes, absolutely. So for you, I'm assuming that even if you're not doing it all the time, when you hear that piece, you're like, oh my God, that's when I was dating this I get, I get flashbacks. You get, yeah. yeah. 100%. No, I, I ran across a, a video. I was looking through my hard drive the other day mm-hmm. to back up some stuff, and I ran across a, a video clip that had a weird tag on it. I was like, I don't know what this is, so I played it. And it was literally, I had put my phone, I had recorded video because I didn't have a voice memo app on it for some reason. I had recorded video just put it on the piano and had played like a couple of phrases on the piano and then had emailed it to myself. Mm -hmm. And this was, I was an undergrad, so this had to have been probably 2002, 2003. Uh And how it made it onto my present work computer is beyond me. Um, But I immediately had flashbacks because it was in a recording. It was in a, it was in a practice room at my undergrad, like in the music building. And I knew exactly what had happened that day you know where I was at in my life at that point in time, one hundred percent. It's just Isn't like weird. Just, yeah. it's just like you little... see in your photography too. I'm sure. Like, oh you yeah, know, if you shot someone three years ago, your style has evolved and sharpened since then. Definitely. You know, I can I can definitely tell you kind of what was what was influencing me at the time, um, kind of how I was looking at stuff. Um, yeah, and it's it's a snapshot in time for more than one reason. It's not just what's in front of the camera, but everything that I was doing behind the camera. One hundred percent. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's why it's important for everyone. I always say that to all my friends, whatever. It's important for everyone to create, no mm-hmm. matter what it is. Write bad poetry, take crappy pictures, write bad music. Not uh, not bad or whatever. Just write, just create because, you know, it may not be what you want to do for a living. Sing, you know, I think we need to create as human beings. And yes. a lot of people get lost in the nine to five, you know, circus, circus of you know, trying to make ends meet, but you know, there's a part of us that I think everyone, you know, needs to create, even if they're not going to be the next whatever. Yeah. And so I know a lot of people are hung up afraid because it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be, you know, worth the public seeing, but that's not the point. That's not not the the point point of creating. The point of creating is to, to take that gestation within you and actualize it, to realize it. Be a lot less angry people. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So a lot of my, a lot of my listeners are, um, like I said, younger singers, semi-pro singers, people that are looking to really, um, really kind of hit their stride as, a, as a, an opera professional. When you work with singers, what what are you looking for in the singers that you work with? Because this is a very specific niche of working with singers, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're dealing with a process when something is in workshop. What are you looking for from the singers so these guys can kind of get an idea as to, you know what the behavior needs to look like, what, the, what they can expect from working on a process in, in motion. I'm looking for them to be there for the right reasons. I've worked with a lot of um, students, undergrads, who are there because they want to be a star or they weren't sure what else to do or they like opera but they don't really know what it is specifically that they want to focus on. And I think that the more specific you can be about what it is you want to achieve what it is you want to what it is you want your art to say and what you create to say 
the more I'm, I want to work with you because if you're very rigid about this is all that I want to do, I have nothing else to learn and um, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it this way. That's not interesting to me. They yeah. have to be sponges. They have to be so eager to learn, do new things, try new things, and just be there for the same reason that I'm there, which is to do something great and collaborate. Yeah. Um, I, I just I think that so many people now are always looking for the quickest route. They're looking for the shortcut, which, I mean, everybody talks about this now. And I think that there are... Anytime you take a shortcut, you're going to miss out on yeah. certain parts of the process and in the long run I think that that um, is not good for the end result we're constantly obsessed with life hacks mm -hmm. and that you know how can I how can I tweak this to be get me there faster better mm -hmm. without having to put the time in or the effort in 100% I mean that's day-to-day -day life in America <laughs> I mean, you know they say you know the work you do in private you are celebrated for you know you put in the time and I, and I think what I look for is I put so much um, detail and effort into my music. I'm not just writing. I, I, I really, really care. Even if, like, my mom and I were, like, talking the other day. It was so funny. We are talking about a commission fee. And I said, well, you know, I'm working on this fugue, and um, it takes me about an hour to write one second of music. And she's like, you're making, like, less than minimum wage. <laughs> you're putting all this time. Yes. I'm like, my, it's not for that. It's for... You know, I would be writing regardless if I got paid or not or whatnot. But what I look for in young artists is know the music. Come in there knowing the piece, you know. We put a lot of effort. So you can to, change it again. Yeah, again. to write it. So we could change it because you can't change it if you don't know it. That's totally true. Yeah. Um, and I, I also love it. Uh, I personally, I know not a lot of composers are like, some are like this. Like composers are very different. Some people are like, it has to be exactly how I writ, wrote it. I'm more, I love it when a performer just gives it their own spin or taste. Even if the notes are a little funny or yeah. not that they didn't learn the notes, but like if they like just give it their own spin and interpret it um, in their own way. I love that so much, especially since my music is so romantic. Yeah. I really want yeah. you to go over the top with the lyricism and with the rubato. And I think a lot of young singers are scared of that. They go, Oh, can I do a little bit more here? A little bit more there? Cause a lot of music is like minimalistic and it's mm -hmm. very, you know, within three plus two plus one, but you know, and when you're like that, you have to be like that. Um, so I would hope that singers know that composers, you know, they might be rigid, but they're also very open to hearing um, interpretation because that's what you guys do for a living. You mm -hmm. interpret. And I'll always take a violinist or a singer's word over if something needs to be changed or doesn't work more than like uh, producers or whatnot. Yeah. Because singers, and you can't trick performers. I remember Lee Hoiby says, you can't trick a singer or you can't trick the performers. You can trick the audience, but you cannot fool your musicians. Yeah. And you guys know when something's good and something's like not good. Yeah. Right. You know, if we as composers or artists or writers were lazy. You say, oh God, this is like really, you know, like banal. And they were not, you wrote this while he was watching yeah. TV. Um, but I'm, I, I think singers should be, you know, more confident and come in with, you know, a perspective, not just, oh yeah, I'll just, but like you said, you're, the, the first thing you mentioned was know the music. You can't do yeah. any of that yes. without knowing the music. Mm -hmm. You can't come in and be like, well, I want to be kind of flexible with this no. unless you're aware of what's already on the page. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. if you come in knowing everything perfectly or to the best of your ability, then everyone else will be more open to hearing you yes. what you want to change. Because yes. you can't just want to change it because you didn't learn it. Yeah. You know? I did a premiere uh, in grad school of a 
baritone and French horn cycle um, for a composer that had heard me sing. And she's like, I know the, you know the, the French horn guy that's going to be playing for this. Would you be interested in singing the baritone part? I said, yeah, sure. So I learned it. And it was an, it was an interesting... Some of them were, were really nice and lyrical, and some of them were chaos for the sake of chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I learned them, I, I, I came to her and I said, how would you feel about tweaking this? Or this is a little rough for a baritone to sing. Or this is right where my break is. Can we you know, change this one note here? Or, you know, something like that. And because I could already throw down the piece and was ready to rock and roll, she's like, oh yeah, tweak this. Let me, let me write some notes right now. And so we would then, in rehearsal, try it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I like this a lot. Or flat out, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was a dialogue we were yeah. having, which you wouldn't have in any other circumstance. Um, so I like that a lot. The goal is to create things that seem really hard to sing or do, but are actually, cap- you know, you're actually capable of doing it. If it sounds really easy to sing, but it's really hard to learn, that's not really, that's the opposite of what you want to kind of go for. Yeah. Remember, uh, Thea Musgrave taught me that. She goes, you want it to sound really hard, but be really easy to do. Yeah. yeah. Or if it, I mean, sometimes it's virtuosic and you, and I'm putting the effort into making a virtuosic, you know, aria, you're putting in the effort to make it sound that way. Right. It, you know, it's just what you're going for. Yeah. But I think a lot of um, composers, like with the vocal writing, it's a human there, you know? Yes. <laughs> they're not a clarinet. They're not a, you know, they, they need to breathe. And things in the, everyone's voice sounds very different. And every singer is so different, you know? Um, which is why I like doing uh, writing for a specific singer. Mm-hmm. You know, and you could go through things that fits them well. Is it easier and, for you to write for a specific singer? Or just you just enjoy it a little bit more because you know what you're already working with? I, I enjoy more because I know what I'm going to get. Yeah. And I know what they're good at and I know what they um, need to work on. And, you know, it's very good at hiding it. It's like, you know, you're trying to suit and I have the tailor hide that little bulge right there. And I feel like that's what I do when I'm writing for a specific singer. Yeah. You know? Well, and look at all the, all the great opera composers through history, the, the, especially the really big premieres. They were, they were writing for somebody specific. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, this person's going to sing this role. This person's going to sing this role. I work with this guy over here. I'm going to have him come in and do this. And then you don't have to worry if they could sing it or not. You can right. just worry on the drama yeah. and the dramatic pacing. Oh, I know they could do this. No ease. I don't have to like worry. Oh, can I do this or not do this or this work? Or if you write this big note and I go, man, that's impossible to get to, then yeah. it's not really going to work out. Well, I'm really excited for the project. I, I had a blast at the third workshop. I'm really looking forward to Whenever it's produced, we will uh, <laughs> knock on with that real soon because that, that would be awesome. Um, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast and hanging out and chatting a little bit through thanks this. Thanks so much for having us and for taking our pictures. Daniel's an incredible photographer. <laughs> you don't know that, stuff. He made us both look gorgeous. I have, I have shot portraits of both of you guys. That's right. Yes. yes. Thank you for having us. It was so much fun. Absolutely. For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can find me directly on Instagram at thebeardandlens and the podcast biz. Thanks for visiting. Thanks for listening to the Opera Biz Podcast.